The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily express those held by this station or its advertisers and are strictly the opinions held by those contributing to the show. Welcome to the Eric Little High School Football Podcast, your home for news, discussion, and opinions about high school football in the Mid-Ohio Valley. And now, here's your host, Eric Little. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. Again, I am the namesake. Happy to have you with us for this 20th episode of the 2019 season. Of course, this is a podcast about high school football in the Mid-Ohio Valley. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud, rate us and review us, download the episode each Wednesday during football season, and even after football season, a little bit, I guess, as there's a lot to talk about this week. Last week was originally going to the season finale, but I looked at things as I was planning the episode and I realized it was just too much to tackle and too many things to talk about to not continue it for another week. And the thing certainly justified continuing the show for another week. So I made the decision to do that and consider it my Christmas gift to you. A lot of things to cover. First, let's take a look at the coaching carousel. As we mentioned and speculated about last week, Terry Smith is out at Williamstown, and what a legacy he leaves. Smith, in 16 years as the head coach of the Yellow Jackets, won well over 100 games and made the playoffs all 16 years. That might be the most impressive stat out of that bunch. But also, he won Tuesday championships and went to the Super 6 seven times. That means nearly half of the 16 seasons Smith was the head coach of the Yellow Jackets. Williamstown made it to the state final, made it to the Super 6 in 7 of those 16 seasons. That's an impressive run for Terry Smith at Williamstown. And you have to think about what Williamstown football was before Terry Smith. And I think so much of Williamstown football has been mythologized because of Terry Smith. So much of the mythology comes during that Terry Smith era. But if you look back at eras, especially in the 70s and really the 80s, Williamstown football wasn't much to write home about for a long time and for many seasons, save a few great players and save a couple big seasons here or there. But the winning tradition, the winning with regularity, that happened at Williamstown High School after Terry Smith came on there. They had good seasons before that and just prior to that. Dave Chapman took them to the Super 6. Bernie Buttry had good teams at Williamstown, but winning did not begin there on the reg until Terry Smith started at Williamstown High School. So uh, that'll be a big change, and whoever steps in to fill that role has some big shoes. And which way do they go? Do they go with somebody that's in the area that's established? Do they go with an assistant coach? Do they go with someone off of his staff? Is there somebody out of the area that has Williamstown ties that might want to come home and take that job on? It's not going to be an easy job because that's a small community, and though the cupboard's not bare, you've only got a certain amount of things to work with, and you've got to have the kind of program that engenders participation and that gets people to come out and participate in that program. That's easier said than done. So it'll be interesting to see what the next person does when they come in to follow Terry Smith. By the way, he leaves some pretty big shoes and a great legacy of not just molding championship teams and playing winning football, but also molding quality young people for the everyday world. And in one that isn't widely reported, one that hasn't really been widely reported, Lance Benninger is no longer at Parkersburg Catholic High School. I have a source that tells me that Lance Benninger was not offered a contract for next season, and there are even some whispers that the program may be on the verge of being shuttered at Parkersburg Catholic High School as school administrators could be looking to go a different direction. It would be a shame if that's the case, because Benninger has won in each of the last two of his three seasons at Parkersburg Catholic High School. His first team went 0-8, and they were teetering on the brink of even having a football team, and then he followed that up with a 9-1 campaign and a trip to the state playoffs, and a 6-4 campaign this past season just missing out on the state playoffs. 
playoffs. But look at those last two seasons for Benninger. 15-5 and five in two seasons, and all five losses in each of the last two seasons come to teams that also made the playoffs. So the winning pedigree at Parkersburg Catholic that was set during the Danny Tennant era, it stumbled for a little while, but they did have good players and good teams here and there. But by and large, it had fallen off of Leighton Lance Benninger, the guy that helped resurrect that and pick that back up. Three of his players this year named to the Class A All-State team. So where does he go next? That remains to be seen, but either way, word has it Lance Benninger out of Parkersburg Catholic after reportedly not being offered a contract there for the 2020 season. Time now to look inside the mailbag this week. I actually found this question on someone's share of one of my old poll posts. And I want to remind people of this or maybe make people aware of this. When somebody shares one of my statuses or posts on their own page, I don't always see the comments that are left on that for a couple reasons. I can't always see things that are shared. It won't always show me that. Facebook won't always show me that. But I don't always think or know to go back and look at comments or look for comments or questions on every other place that my link or poll or podcast has been shared. So uh, if you want to ask something and get that on the air, make sure you do that on the actual post itself. Go onto my page and find that post through my page as well. I don't always see what's posted through a share of my post. So make sure you go on the actual post itself. This was a poll that Craig Dutton shared, and a comment comes from Kevin Hartle wrote, his color commentator on WXCR this past season. Should teams have to play at least 60% of the regular season games against West Virginia schools to qualify for the West Virginia State title? Should teams have to play at least 60% of the regular season games against West Virginia schools to qualify for the West Virginia State title? My short answer to that is no. The longer answer to that is there are a lot of teams that, based on class and where they are in the state geographically are sort of on islands. Uh, I know Buchanan Upshur is on a bit of an island in class AAA, though they're not a border team, but there's not a whole lot of AAA teams around them. They have to go a long way to find the nearest AAA school. But how about teams in places like the Eastern Panhandle? The Eastern Panhandle has six AAA schools right now with Martinsburg, Spring Mills, Hedgesville, Musselman, Washington, and Jefferson. But where do you go if you're a AA school? Someone like Berkeley Springs, for instance. Now, Berkeley Springs did play a couple games outside the state, but they did manage to play a majority West Virginia schedule this year. They do have have a couple Class A teams on that schedule, and one of their double-A games is against East Fairmont, which couldn't have been an easy trip for Berkeley Springs to make, or definitely not a short trip for Berkeley Springs to make. But that's not even the most extreme example. Go to the Northern Panhandle. You've got a school like Oak Glen, who got some attention this year because they went unbeaten, but the ranking still had them at six because of points. Oak Glen has a lot of schools of their comparable size in that region, but many of those are in Ohio. And the same could be said, for that matter, in Class AAA of Brook. At least Oak Glen has Weir in AA, but Brook really doesn't have a whole lot of AAA schools up that way, except for Wheeling Park, and then beyond that and John Marshall, you have to go a long way still. So, geography hurts a lot of teams, but I'll also say this, those teams that play schedules that are heavily leaning toward other states, they don't always have it easy either, and sometimes the competitive balance goes the other way. Look at a school like Wahama. Wahama this year played just two games against West Virginia schools. They play in the Tri-Valley Conference, a conference that's Ohio-based, I believe Wahama is the only West Virginia team in that conference. So they're going up against Southeastern Ohio powers like Waterford and Eastern, teams that have been good lately and they've made the playoffs lately in Ohio. So maybe regionally they identify with those schools because, again, though they are not exactly on an island as far as other schools, it's a little tough for Wahama in Mason County to find too many other Class A schools around them. They are a much better fit in the Little Canal Conference. I believe that's where they're trying to get back to. But playing out of state has not 
really worked for Wahama of late. Maybe it keeps them closer to home and maybe it helps with scheduling in some of their Olympic sports. But at the same time, they play some really tough teams and some really good competition in football. So to answer Kevin's question, no, I don't think teams have to play a certain percentage of the regular season games against state schools to qualify for the state title because of a number of reasons. Geography being one, competitive balance another. But I do thank you so much for the question and thank you for your participation. Stay connected with us on Facebook. Like our page, the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. While you're there, answer our weekly poll question and feel free to share your comments or questions. Eric will get to those on a future edition of the show. In just a moment, we'll take a look at the top five storylines going into the 2020 season. I know that's the big reason I wanted to do another episode, but first I wanted to get a couple reactions out there to the Metro News Player of the Year and to the Class AAA All-State team. The Metro News Player of the Year went to Gerard Bowie of Martinsburg, a deserving pick. He had a great postseason, especially the semifinal and state championship round. He had three touchdowns in the state title game, a win against Cabell Midland that locked up Martinsburg's fourth straight state title. This season, he took six punts to the house. He returned six punts for touchdown this year, which at one point deep in the season was half of his punt returns that ended up going for scores. But Bowie won despite not getting the most first place votes. He got four first place votes. Brandon Penn of Parkersburg South got eight first place votes, but Bowie had 32 points to Penn's 30, so Bowie edges Penn in a close vote. Pocatellback Ethan Payne was third with four first place votes, 22 points overall. And then it was Fairmont senior quarterback Gage Michael, Dodbridge County running back Hunter America. They each got one first place vote, and that rounded out the top five. Bridgeport running back Carson Winky had two first place votes and eight points in sixth. Then Martinsburg quarterback Elijah Banks, Wheeling Central linebacker Adam Murray, Cabo Midland quarterback J.J. Roberts, and then with one point each, it was Musselman tailback Blake Hartman and Wheeling Park quarterback Alex Dunleavy. By the way, I am Hartman's one point. I read this to share who got consideration. I'll reveal my ballot as well because I do have a vote in this poll. I don't have a vote for the Kennedy Award, uh, but my vote in this poll went Brandon Penn, Ethan Payne of Polka, and Blake Hartman of Musselman. I didn't even see Hartman play because he was out for the game against Parkersburg South, but I was impressed enough by the numbers and impressed enough by what I'd heard. My instant reaction to this is to say that Bowie is a worthy selection for this award, but I'm a little curious as to how somebody can get twice as many first place votes as the winner and still manage to not get first place. I wonder if people that saw Penn are the ones that voted for him. I think Ethan Payne was carried by the southern part of the state because the southern part of the state is very double-A heavy. I think there were a lot of folks on his bandwagon all year long. I feel Gerard Bowie got a late push from his postseason efforts, but if he had such a strong finish, then how did a lot of those people out in the Eastern Panhandle not also vote for Blake Hartman? That I don't see. And I really think that if you saw Penn play, you probably voted for him compared to some of those other guys. But I also wonder what that says about the publicity afforded to Class AAA in this area. Which leads me to my next point. Looking at All-State selections, Parkersburg South has five players selected for All-State. Of the four Class AAA semifinalists, that is the fewest number of All-State picks. Martinsburg and Cabo Midland were in the Super 6. The Bulldogs got 13. The Knights got 10. Spring Valley, the only other team aside from South to make the Final Four and not go to the state championship game, they had seven picks. But you mean to tell me that from a semifinal team in a 29-team classification that only five players merited All-State consideration? They are Dylan Day, Braxton Amos, Brandon Penn, Jeffrey Tucker, and Devin Gaines. 
There were a whole lot of other players that were very worthy, and I'll even name a few of them. How about Sam Schuler, the only other Patriot beside Penn to finish with more than 100 tackles, played a great linebacker this year for Parkersburg South. I thought the wide receivers, other than Dylan Day, performed admirably. Landon Francisco, Jake Hogsett, and Levi Rice, although really that looks more impressive if you throw their numbers together collectively. Uh, that definitely is an All-State pick. I don't know if individually they have the resumes that are impressive as Day's, because Day is certainly deserving of his All-State selection. But how about this? For a team that ran the ball for more than 3,000 yards and a team that had two different players run for 1,000 yards each. How is an offensive lineman not a part of that first-team All-State or any All-State selection? How does an offensive lineman for Parkersburg South miss out? Like the two guys that led the way on the offensive line this year, Marshall McPherson and Gabe Hendershot, both of those guys deserve to be mentioned in the All-State team, and they didn't get that. And the snubs from this area go beyond Parkersburg South. PHS had several players that got mentions, but the biggest and most egregious miss is Sam Potts. He had nine interceptions last year. And you mean to tell me there's not a place on a team anywhere for him? You've got special honorable mention and honorable mention both, but there's lists of names that are non-specific to positions. And I'm sure there are quotas that are, they try to fill when they put the other these teams, but that's a, a very clear misfire in that category and for Sam Potts. So it makes me wonder what it is that led to that from this area because there's, there are snubs all over the place and there are snubs especially at the Class A and Class AA levels, but I have a hard time thinking that uh, of 29 teams, you've got teams that went to the playoffs that have snubs that are this egregious. The All-State process is basically the state sports writers meet in a room, or representatives from at least every organization in the state meet in a room. They discuss everybody, that they bring their names to the table, and, and they have a good, healthy conversation about it. And it takes hours sometimes. They do weigh these things very seriously. But as such, each sports writer bears the burden of carrying the torch for all of their area's players. And that's something that you do throughout the season by writing about them and by covering them. And not necessarily, but sometimes, stumping for them at the actual meeting itself. So you don't have to have a lot of bluster or bravado to do it. You just have to be consistent about covering these players and highlighting their exploits. And you have to question whether or not that's being done at the level it needs to be done to have snubs that are that egregious in this area. To quote the great poet Rihanna, this is what you came for. The top five storylines going into 2020, no particular order. How about the progression of Parkersburg High School quarterback Bryson Singer, who was a big running threat for Mike Bias's Big Reds this year. Did more with his legs than with his arm, but if he develops as a passer and his decision-making improves, then the sky could be the limit for him if he becomes a dual-purpose player and a dual-threat player. He could be the best quarterback in this area next year, and he could be one of the best players in the state next year if he continues to progress and develop as he did from day one until the end of the season. Frontier and River, I mentioned them last week, but they should both be strong, and that rivalry should be fueled by the fact that those two teams will be good this year. River finished 6-4 and four with their upset win over Frontier in the final week of the season, and that did propel Mike Flannery's squad to a 6-4 and four season and a winning record, but he's always felt that next year is where big things are really possible for this group of River Pilots, and even though Russ Morris loses a lot next year, his Frontier Cougars should be strong. They should have enough left in the cupboard to make a run of things in the postseason again. They had seven wins this year, but not a strong enough schedule with those seven wins to get into the postseason. But the strength of those two teams should lead to a good rivalry there. Participation is going to continue to be an issue. In this region, we saw Clarksburg-Notre Dame, okay, maybe reaching outside the region a little bit, but Clarksburg-Notre Dame canceled their season a couple weeks before the season. Federal Hawking canceled their season a few weeks into the season. And quite honestly, Magnolia probably should have canceled their season with a few weeks left to go. But who's next? Is anyone next? And does it get worse? And where do these schools that cancel their seasons go now? Are they 
able to get interest back once it's been gone for at least that year? Uh, is there a 2020 season for either of those three schools or anyone else? And is that symbolic of an epidemic in this area? Is that a statement on what high school students feel about the game of football and their own participation in that? Or are these just communities and small areas and small schools that have not found somebody that can put the winning formula together in that small community? It's easier said than done. It's not easy to win in small places. Uh, there are some schools that have had to shutter football this year uh, because they just can't seem to get somebody that engenders the excitement and the enthusiasm, the participation among the student body that they need to have to not just win and succeed, but to even field a team. What happens next, especially for a program like Magnolia? It seems like that a lot of the students that didn't play didn't play because of head coach Dave Chapman, and I like Dave Chapman. I'm a big fan of his. He and his wife have devoted their lives in service to students and student athletes and being mentors for people, but the numbers on that Magnolia team dwindled to 15 uh, or even fewer uh, by the end of the year. They definitely should have considered ending that season early, and we're close to being forced to doing that. So does participation rear its ugly head next August? Who is in danger of not having a season? We already mentioned Parkersburg Catholic could be looking to change directions with their program. I think participation will be a bigger story in 2020 than it even was in 2019. What's the next step for some of the successful programs in this area? St. Mary's made it back to the playoffs last year after a one-year absence. Can the running game carry them into 2020? Parkersburg South had a strong first season under Nathan Tanner. 11 wins and a state semifinal appearance. That was just the third state semifinal appearance in school history, by the way, for Parkersburg South. So what next? They have some left coming back next year, but they have a lot of holes to fill. Can they recruit the hallways to do that? Ritchie County, can they put enough skill and enough talent around now sophomore quarterback Ethan Hott? will be a sophomore next year. Are they going to be able to reload around him and build for his final three years? Tyler Consolidated graduates the best offensive player they've had in school history with Mark Rucker, who was, by the way, named Offensive Player of the Year at the Class A level by Coalfields and Company this week. So losing Rucker to graduation, can they continue continue to win without him? What can they do? And uh, will everyone else be able to shoulder that load? And again, for Parkersburg Catholic, back-to-back winning seasons under Lance Benninger, but apparently Benninger's contract has not been renewed, and there's even talk about shuttering that program. And finally, coaching situations. We mentioned Benninger, we mentioned Terry Smith, but what about other guys like Chapman at Magnolia? Does he stick around and survive there? And if so, does he get the participation that he needs to get that program going for another year? And there's even been rumors that the Mike Bias tenure at PHS will come to an end, not because they don't want him, but because of his family situation. His family does not live here. They live in North Carolina and uh, may or may not want to move up this way. And he may or may not want to be separated from them any longer. It's got to be tough to be away from your family when you're working a job uh, like high school football coaching that keeps you so busy through so many different parts of the day. So I don't think the coaching carousels finished spinning for 2020. And I think the remaining rides should be pretty interesting. But those are my top five storylines to watch going into the 2020 season. Earlier this year, when recording an episode of Countdown to Kickoff with my V96.9 broadcast partner, Garrett Furr, we were talking about Emily Field and St. Mary's High School. St. Mary's High School hosted its last game at Emily Field in 2014. The school closed in December 2014. So it's not even been five years, really, as we record this, since that school's been closed. And in that time, the school's gone, Emily Field is gone, and what stands on that lot is largely an empty lot, the Board of Education offices and a Taco Bell that's been there about a year. So there was some nostalgia flowing for the old place, and we were talking about some of the things that we liked about the old place. And of course, some of them you can't bring over to the new stadium. It's a sparkling facility. You're not going to replace the field surface with grass, and there's just certain other elements that you're not going to bring back. 
but there's one easy element the folks in St. Mary's should consider bringing back to Bill Hanlon Stadium. Welcome back. Eric Little joined by my partner on V96.9, Garrett Fur. And Garrett, what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to us. We had this conversation off the air after taping as we come to you here on this uh, edition of the podcast. You and I, as St. Mary's High School graduates, while we appreciate the fact that St. Mary's High School is a new building and they have a brand new athletic facility, and, and that's nice, and, and the kids of Pleasance kind of deserve nothing but the best. And it is top of the line. Most of that place is top of the line. And even the parts that weren't top of the line when they open <laughs> the baseball field... <laughs> <laughs> They're working on it, and it is getting better. Yes, yes. So the one thing that we were talking about off there a few weeks ago is how cold and kind of austere Bill Hanlon Stadium is. You know, you could plot Bill Hanlon Stadium down, and if it wasn't for the purple and gold everywhere, you wouldn't know where it is. That's exactly right. But there's one thing that you and I stumbled upon that I think could bring Bill Hanlon Stadium up to where it still reflects the tradition of St. Mary's High School Athletics. And that was the Ivy. The Ivy that ran the fence line along Route 16. We stumbled upon this. Yeah, and I don't remember which one of us had the idea at this point, to be honest. It would be so easy, I believe, to transplant some Ivy, bring it up there, because when Emily Field was in its heyday, that was one of the you know the big draws that yeah. you, you thought of and you just... Similar to the you know the big giant oil rig lights, we thought of the Ivy. I think we were talking about the signature characteristics about Emily Field that we missed the most. Mm-hmm. The oil derricks holding up the lights; those were cool. I don't know if they they, they shown the light everywhere they needed to shine them, <laughs> especially after the truck accident took out one of those yeah. several years back. But it was something that was unique to Emily Field. No other field around here looked like that. But the Ivy is a very easy one to replicate. Yeah, to bring it to an MLB standpoint, when you think Wrigley Field, yes, you think of the Ivy. Yes. When I thought of Emily Field, I thought of the Ivy. Yes. And it would be so easy, I think. It would mean so much to so many people if you were to run that Ivy along the fence. And it's, I know it used to be, I was always told to deter people from standing along Route 16 to watch the game. But let's right. be honest, no one's really standing along Route 16 to watch the game. That is such a safety hazard. Yes. So I don't think that was ever really any part of the reasoning behind it. But if it was, it became more than that. It became part of the, the pride and the history that people took in that and the tradition of Emily Field. And you come to Emily Field and you know you have the Ivy along the one fence line. And I thought that it would be a great touch and a great idea for someone to bring that up to Bill Hanlon Stadium. Fairly simple to do. Fairly inexpensive, as far as I know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the prices of Ivy, but it could be a slow process even. You don't need yeah. to put the whole fence in Ivy to begin with. You can just do little patches and let it grow, because yeah. Ivy grows pretty quick. And look, is there a clamor right now to put Ivy at Bill Hanlon Stadium? Probably not. This is not something I hear discussed, but you and I were just spitballing one day about things that we miss about the old place yeah. compared to the new place, and that would be, to me, the easiest one to bring back. You're not to bring back the natural grass because, or at least not right now, because the turf is what, what it is pristine. Yeah, it, it's, it is. It's, it's a nice surface. It's what people are playing the game on these days, pretty much everywhere. Yeah. You're not going to bring back the oil derricks because they already have lights <laughs> and they, they work just fine. Yes. And that was more a matter of retrofitting back in the day in a way that preserved something, but also, uh, if they probably got those donated from somewhere. I would figure so, yeah. Right, Right when Emily first got lights, I would imagine sometime after World War II, mm-hmm. if I'm being honest. So you're just kind of making that work out of what you have, but this is something you could do from scratch, and I don't even know if people know that they would want this, but they want this, I think. I, and I this have is, to agree. And this is why we're putting this out there. Yeah, hopefully this catches some you know some traction, that kind of a snowball effect after this podcast airs, that yeah. people hear this and they think, oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be one, easy, two, 
it would bring back so many memories. And three, it would really kind of add that St. Mary's touch to Bill Hamlin Stadium. I want a forest green shirt with an SM on the front that says, bring back the Ivy. I, that's I all it says. Should, I think we should get behind that. Maybe we could bake those shirts, and that's our fundraiser, and we take the money and be like, look, you can have this money, mm-hmm. you know, if you put Ivy in with it. Yeah. Otherwise, Garrett and I are going to, the, to Vegas or something. We're going like, to start picketing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, Garrett and I are going to take our T-shirt money, we're going to go somewhere cool, <laughs> and we're, we're going to do something with it that is not at all in the intended vein of what the money was raised to do. But that's our push. Ivy, St. Mary's High School. Make it happen. I think it would be a great touch, and I truly do believe that a lot of the community would get behind this. A vote for Garrett and I is a vote for Ivy. 2020. 2020. Make it happen. That's our time this week, and that's our time this season. Don't forget to download us on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can subscribe to us on either place, rate us, and review us on iTunes. It certainly helps. Thank you for participation all year long on our Facebook page. Some thank yous before we go, and a big one to Ryan Watson. He's the voice you hear during the bumper. He'll, you'll hear him at the end. You'll hear him at the beginning. I asked him to voice those things prior to last season, and he graciously did that. And I've used his voiceover work ever since, so a thank you to Ryan Watson for that. Thank you to all of you who download, who listen, who email me and let me know about this, and who text me and let me know about this and participate in the polls and vote in the polls and leave comments and questions. Uh, I cannot tell you how much your support means to me and means to the show. It keeps this show going. Every once in a while, a good bit of feedback here or there is what every broadcaster needs and every podcaster needs to keep it going. And I thank you so much for doing that, not just for me, but for this project as well. I'll continue to do it as long as the feedback continues to be good, uh, but I won't do it anymore this season. I can tell you what, next Wednesday is Christmas. The Wednesday after that is New Year's Day. I won't be back for either of those. This is the season finale. May break in as news merits if there's something huge that happens. We may chime in with a thought here or there, but otherwise this is the last regular episode of the podcast in 2019. Unless plans change, we'll see you again in 2020, sometime in August of 2020 for another season of the Aircrow High School Football Podcast. Thank you for supporting Season 2. Your support is appreciated. That's our time today. My name is Eric Little and I'll talk to you down the road. Thanks for a great season, everybody. This has been the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and vote in our weekly poll. And thanks for listening.